There is a group of AIDS denialists that say that HIV does not exist and has never been isolated, um, which is <laughs> as, as bizarre as it gets. We do not say that HIV doesn't exist. What we say is that the presently available data does not prove the existence of HIV. We weren't just given handfuls of AZT, we demanded it. That's the very reason why everybody believes HIV is a deadly virus, because the HIV-positive patient at that time got a deadly treatment. That is AIDS by prescription. You get immunodeficiency and you die from the tox. That is AIDS by prescription. Hello, everyone. You've just heard some clips from the documentary film House of Numbers, which questions the link between HIV and AIDS. More than this, it suggests the antiviral treatment for HIV, a drug called AZT, is itself responsible for a lot of the deaths attributed to the virus. Today's guest has been forced to confront these questions due to tragic circumstances in his own life. John DeLuca lost his mother to what he thought was the HIV virus. Years later, he questioned this after encountering the controversial work of Dr. Peter Duisberg, the final voice you heard during those clips. John is not approaching this as a professional scientist, rather he is a martial artist and writer. In this interview, he describes his journey right up to the point of coming to doubt viruses cause disease or even exist at all. I've no idea how far to go along that line. I'll leave it up to you, the listener, to decide for yourselves. Here's John explaining how this all began for him. The sad part out of the way is that when I was just about to turn 14, my mom got diagnosed HIV positive, right? And the ensuing five years were her taking AZT, eventually, eventually having a pancreatitis attack and never really recovering from that, and then dying around my 20, like a month before my 20th birthday, right? So about five maybe six years after her diagnosis, right? So I'll get that part out of the way. That's the sad part. That's the part that affected my life drastically, you know, just losing my mother at that age, right? So, but, you know, I wasn't, first of all, there wasn't really that much internet back then. I wasn't really that confident in myself that I could figure out how to, how to heal her, you know, I knew she was sick. I saw the AZT come into the hot, come into the house in bags with skulls and bones on the, on them. And I, and I was like, even at my like primitive mind at that age was like, mom, this can't be good. Like, why, why are you taking this? You know, like there must be at that age, I was a little bit interested in herbs and help. I used to go to the health food store. I, you know, I went to the library and read books about factory farms. And I was on, in the mindset of like natural healing is better. I didn't really know why I just had this, this like instinct towards that, but you know, it, it didn't really do anything. It was just, it didn't really affect her decision to take AZT. And I, I wasn't confident at the time that I could tell her don't take you know, definitively don't take pharmaceutical drugs. I knew the pharmaceutical companies were corrupt because I knew industries corrupt, basically, you know, from that age. Like my dad 
is a bit of a conspiracy theorist, at least in the sense of like not trusting the government, not trusting big corporations, like that kind of thing. So I had a bit of a background in not trusting the official story of of take take AZT. You know, that was it. That was all the doctor said was take this drug. You know, what, what kind of year are we talking here, John? When you were 14? 1990, she was diagnosed in 1990. Okay. And she died in uh, 1995. So back then, like, I wasn't in New York. I'm from New York, but we moved to Florida after her diagnosis to live closer to my grandparents because, you know, she, she basically got a death sentence. So she wanted to, we had to move down to Florida to, like, spend the rest of her life around family, you know? And... There, I didn't have access to like that much information. It was not a not a big city in Florida. It's kind of a suburb of Tampa, and I there was a library. But like I said, my my library experience led me to like books on veganism, on like factory farming, veganism, herbs, naturopathy. You know, I would look at natural medicine, but there was never a doubt that HIV. She contracted a virus called HIV that caused AIDS. I never had like a doubt about that at that age, you know. Sure, it'd be nearly impossible to doubt that in like 1990, unless you're moving in some very unusual circles. It's not like today where the internet is full of this stuff. Right. Maybe if I was still in New York, because I know up here there was groups, there was people already discussing that. But like you know, I was 15. I was in high school, so. I was just kind of crossing my thing. And I, I grew up Catholic. I grew up believing in, in God and kind of like I would pray like I hope. And I still believe in God, but in a different way, you know. But I would pray like for its doctors to find a cure. That was my thing. I was like, maybe they'll find a cure because there would be news sometimes like Magic Johnson never died. You know, there was always these like stories of some people survive. Like, you know, some people live a long time. So like. I was hanging on that hope. And then, you know, I got distracted by my own life in high school, like just trying to be a normal person. But there was a stigma. That's a stigma too. Like I can never really talk to people about my mother's disease, you know, especially it's, this was still the nineties. It was a sexually transmitted disease. You know, it was like drug addicts and prostitutes and gay, you know, like it was, it was a disease that people made jokes about it. it's a joke like people always joke about it oh you got got AIDS from drinking your drink you know that kind of thing I had to like withstand all that you know mm. and and I jump around a lot so if you want me to get back on track just let me know no that's fine no I think maybe say whatever you want to say and we'll go in the direction of when your mind started to change or where you started to consider other possibilities for what was going on with your mother's decline in health and ultimate death Right. So like I said, I have to keep um, I have to keep acknowledging like my father's influence on my thoughts, because from when I was young, my dad taught me like the pharaohs of Egypt were aliens kind of things. He, he wasn't always 100 percent serious, but it was always it, it's always a possibility that like things aren't what they seem on the news. Right. So I'm going to skip ahead to, to 9-11 now because I was in New I came back up to New York that's a long story, but, you know, I came back up to New York and I was living with my dad at the time. And this is 2001, 9-11 that day. Right. And I, I was in Queens, so it wasn't really that close, but 
it was on TV and you could go outside and you could see like just people being uh, it was chaotic, you know, and I worked in Manhattan at the time. So I, I had to go back to work the next day because no one could get back there from Brooklyn. Right. So they needed me because I lived in Queens. I was a, a waiter. So I was waiting tables on 9-12 the next day. Right. So it, but anyway, going back, my father, we watched on TV the whole morning of 9-11, the news. And, you know, my dad is kind of a pothead and we smoked together and we were just sitting there being thinking like, this is so, I don't want to use the word fake, but this is so obviously they had these graphics ready. This is, this thing is like, this is presented to us in a certain way that we're supposed to feel a certain way. And it looked fake, suspicious, right? So 9-11 has something to do with this because I'm going to skip ahead now another five years three or four years, I was um, living in Manhattan and I used to go by Barnes Noble a lot, the bookstore. And um, I saw a David Icke's book in there and on 9-11. So I just started looking through it and I was like, yeah, this, this guy makes sense. And the, the whole, you know, reptilian thing, like I said, my dad was kind of an ancient aliens in his own way, kind of theorist. So I would think like Anunnaki makes sense to me. It makes sense to me that the Babylonians were like worshiping alien. You know, not that it makes sense, but it just it wasn't that far fetched to me. Sure. You know, I took yeah. I took it I took it kind of as amusing too. Like I didn't I didn't read it and think like oh my god I have to fight shape shifting reptilians. But anyway, so I ended up going to like a 9-11, a screening of a 9-11 documentary. I think it was Loose Change, but I'm not really 100% sure. I don't remember. There was a few of them. And there was a guy there that was selling these booklets. And one of the booklets was an excerpt, a, lo- a big excerpt from Peter Duesberg's book, Inventing the AIDS Virus. And I read that and it really like changed my whole life in a way because I was like, oh, this makes a lot of sense. You know, and I took it in my own way. Like I ended up reading the the booklet and then going online and like reading Peter Duesberg's interviews, trying to find more excerpts from the book because I couldn't find it at the time. And I wasn't really that versed in how to find books online and that. So I just I read as much as I could from his interviews and all that. And I basically postulated like in my own mind, like, okay. The HIV, whatever HIV is, whatever they say it is, there was obviously many other factors in my mother's sickness than this little monster getting inside her, hijacking her, and whatever they say it does. Like There was many other factors involved. And then AZT was the biggest factor, you know, because my... I don't want to like share too much personal information, but you know, my, my parents definitely dabbled in drugs, right. And intravenous drugs, you know, they weren't shy about needles, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so I, I knew that from a young age, cause I was, I just, you know, I was around it and I saw it and I, I always knew that like drugs of that nature were not healthy. You know, I knew like you can't do heroin, you can't shoot heroin and expect to be healthy. Like I knew that that's not that's like a no brainer. Right. So 
recognizing that plus AZT, I just was like, well, there's no real need to have this postulate, this postulation of an invisible little monster that kills people. That doesn't seem logical to me anymore. So at that point in my life, I basically just real took it in my in myself, like, I don't believe in viruses, at least to the point where what they say viruses are, I don't believe that, right? But I didn't really talk about it to people unless we brought, like I was close enough to talk to them about my own life, my mother dying and stuff. I didn't walk around telling people, you know, viruses don't cause illness. Like I wasn't that kind of person. It wasn't until COVID where like I had to out of self-defense because like my life was like totally sidetracked and, and sidelined by this media blitz of like, virus, 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 virus. And I was like trying to tell everybody I know. I was like, the viruses don't exist, man. And then at that point, once COVID started, then I jumped into the research of viruses, germ theory, everything in general. Like I was reading like four hours a day, all these books, you know. Anyway, I'm going to stop because I'm rambling, but you can just guide me in a direction if you sure. want. No, I mean, I think there's um, some interesting points there. So Peter Dewsberg's book, I've just read it. And I've kind of read it because I wanted to anyway, but also in preparation for having this conversation. And it's a fascinating book, right? Where, where as you'll know, Peter Dew's book goes for examples of things we thought were viruses and weren't. Like, uh, I didn't know how just how long people thought uh, uh, scurvy was a virus for. Like, right into right. the 20th century, people were looking for still the dreaded scurvy virus. And when there would be an outbreak of scurvy on a sailing ship, they would isolate the person to hope it wouldn't spread. And then it would, of course, spread anyway. And they knew that citrus fruits kept it at bay, uh, but they right. thought the citrus fruits are helping fight the virus, not that scurvy literally was a deficiency in vitamin C. And that's that's all there is to it. Um, so you're, you're reading about the toxicity of uh, AZT. Now, for one, I imagine I'm just, you know, like you, you don't want to go too personal. I don't want to take you too personal, but it must be like, really hitting you on a personal level that what you've had this narrative about your mother's illness and death and then you you come across peter Duesberg's work when you're kind of minding your own business going to a 9-11 meeting and all of a sudden you've got this complete paradigm shift in what brought that about and i can see how you make that step then to thinking well drug culture uh, became a much more prominent thing in the 70s and 80s and that's obviously going to have some effect on the population and then AZC itself is is toxic and kills people. So that must be then what happened. But then you go that that extra step of, well, actually, you don't think viruses exist at all in some sense. So maybe just comment on your journey there on a sort of personal and, and intellectual level. Yeah, sure. Well, just, you know, even from when I was a kid, like I was never germophobic. Like I'm not disgusting. Like I don't like, but like, I'm not like into disgusting things. But I don't, I never believed like if I was around someone, especially someone I loved, like, you know, I shared a room, I shared a room with my mother till I was like 13, 14, right? So like my mom would be sick, she would have a cold, I would have a cold, like, you know, I never, if, if there was a girl I liked in high school or something, you know what I mean? I never was thought that if someone was sick, I was going to get sick from being around them. Unless I, if I didn't like them, I would use that as an excuse to not have to be around them. But if I liked someone, I was never like, oh, I can't be around you because your nose is running. Like, I never thought I was going to get sick from those things. Like, that was, 
And like if I drop food on the floor, like I would pick it up and eat it. Not if it fell in shit, but if it just fell on the floor, I would pick it up and eat it, right? So I never really was germophobic in the first place, right? Even with washing my hands, like I was never like a freak about washing my hands. Hands, I've never used hand sanitizer in my life, right? So, I mean, that might, it might just be a bit of, of a, a way of being, you know, like I just never, germophobia, germophobia never sunk in. I never knew what people were talking about when they said there's a virus, there's, there's, you know, like a thing that flies through the air. When you get sick, it, it comes into your body. Like those things never sunk into me to where I believed them that much in the first place. I just didn't give it that much thought because I was health conscious anyway, because I liked being healthy for activities like martial arts or or sports, you know, I, I never, I didn't want to be fat. Like I was always, I was fat when I was a kid. So like once I, I did, I wanted to like not be fat or be healthy, be strong, be, you know, athletic in some way. So I, I, I wasn't really ever sick that much anyway, but to, I, to articulate it to other people, I would just sound like I sound now. Like I just sound like a regular person who's saying like, I don't believe in germs, you know? And they'll say, well, what's your scientific evidence to back that up, right? It wasn't until COVID that I felt like I had to really develop a vocabulary to discuss it with other people. You know what I mean? Like, at, but at the, yeah. at, the base, at the baseline of my personality of how I perceive the world around me, this idea that there's like pathogenic terror, like little pathogenic terrorists and they cause disease never really fully made sense to me in the first place. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. So there's this intuitive sense that's not the case. And then let's then talk about what happened when COVID hit. Because I think it's quite a distance to go over the line into, oh, okay, this is true and viruses don't exist. And right, so okay. what, what was the kind of intellectual journey that took you down that road and, and ultimately over the line into like, affirming that position? Okay, well, at the time when COVID, I was, I was practicing Aikido. It's a Japanese martial art, really intensely for like 18 years. I was, that was kind of my focus in life is, is that I wanted to eventually have my own dojo. And like, I was really a serious practitioner of Aikido. But uh, when COVID hit, like my dojo closed. And then we were doing, they did Zoom classes. And I, I just was like, I'm not doing Zoom classes, especially because when COVID hit, I didn't believe the news. I didn't believe uh, this is ridiculous. Whatever, whatever they're saying on the news is ridiculous. Like I just know it's it's a psyop. I didn't even know the word psyop yet at that point, but I knew it was a psyop. You know. But okay, so at that point, I I had a lot of time on my hands to just like contemplate like what's really going on, you know, or contemplate and research and educate myself a little bit more. And I found uh, David Crow. There's a guy named David Crow, and he, he had a podcast and a, a website with like his writings about viruses in general. So David Crow was really my introduction to this idea that there's like viruses. The hypothesis of a virus has never been scientifically proven enough for us to just take it and and run with it as like the linchpin of a cosmology, like, okay, there's, there's these things that fly through the air that come into your body and hijack your cells and kill you, right? There, 
they're looking for the evidence of that kind of helps you formulate the fact that, okay, that sounds like a ridiculous story. And what they're doing is filling in, filling in that story with like a scientific no sounding nomenclature, the scientific sounding words that might link up in sentences grammatically, but that actually don't point to any like logical activities happening in the real world. So just like, I guess I just have to tell you like the doctors that I've been reading and, and thinking about is like Tom Cowan, Andrew Kaufman, David Crow is not a doctor, but he's a scientist, you know, he's um, Stefan Lanka, like, you know, you, there's plenty of information out there that you could read and, and weigh it against the official story. Like, I really like your concept of like, compared to what, like in terms of is George Bush a shape-shifting reptilian compared to what? Like, what's yeah. the other so, representation of him, right? Sure. Yes, yeah, so that, that was a philosophical, let's say for the audience, that was a philosophical point I made in my contemplating conspiracy book. And I think I used it in terms of the virus and saying, well, if the, let's say the no virus people are wrong, that sometimes they're, compared to the, the virus people, they're right, you know, because they were right in terms of scurvy, for example. So... Uh, yeah, the, they they make a lot of interesting points, and they can be right about points when you see the. So for me, when COVID hit, uh, I was very cynical, having lived through swine flu and bird flu and tomato flu and all the others. It's another money grab by the pharmaceutical companies and another power grab by the state. Uh, but then when I saw the death rate spike, and it like for a few weeks doubled in the UK and across various European countries. That sold it to me. I was okay. Yeah, there really is a dangerous virus going around. Now, it didn't sell the concept of lockdowns because anyone who's in any way economically literate knows that there's going to be un unintended consequences to that. And sure enough, uh, the canary in the coal mine is always the Africans. An additional 10,000 African kids started dying, uh, starving to death every month as soon as you interrupt supply chains and lock them down and put the global food price up. But for the longest time, I did think there was a virus. And it was really coming into contact with the, the book Virus Mania that made me start to question that. Okay, I start to even put it. And it, when, when that point was made in the book, it's not even that I believed it when I got to the COVID chapter, but it, it was one of those things that's so radical that I had to, I was listening to the audiobook. I had to hit pause and just stand there and look at the world around me and all the chaos that had gone on of people walking around with masks and lockdowns and all the rest over, we're probably like nine months into it at this stage. I'm thinking, what if, like, wouldn't that be the most incredible thing if this just wasn't a thing, right? If it didn't exist, and they they give an example of um, the there's something like the Seattle windshield event, right, where where people started noticing cracks on their windshields in uh, Seattle in the '60s, and then there was this whole investigation into what it was, whether it was unusual weather platforms or some chemical in the windshields they're putting in now, or whether the Russians had some sort of super weapon they were using against the West Coast of the United States, and it turned out that. A few people initially did this, reported to the radio, and then everyone started examining their windshields in great detail. And what do they find? Amazingly, there are all these little cracks on people's windshields. So to me, that kind of thinking really appeals because I like if this their podcast has an underlying concept, it's about perception, about how we look at something changes what that thing is in a, in a very substantial way. So yeah, that was incredible to me. But I'm, I'm sort of still hung up on that question of what caused those death spikes in early 2020. And I don't think I've gotten over the line of that yet. But the other thing I'm really, I'm struck by 
is I'm amazed that this conversation even exists. You can have like a field of virology if viruses don't exist. You can have all these medical professionals disagreeing and some of them are looking down a microscope and saying, look, it's right there. That's the virus there. I can point to it. And other people are saying, no, that's meaningless because it's not meaningfully isolated. And you can't look, this cannot, it's amazing this question cannot be like settled, right? To the extent that it still draws in uh, people with, all sorts of medical degrees and, and uh, qualifications. You know, it is quite distinct from like, let's say a flat earth debate there. Where you, you don't have um, physicists and mathematicians supporting flat earth, but you do have uh, a lot of doctors who either think viruses don't exist or for example, the HIV virus isn't causing AIDS, some variation of that. So yeah, maybe just say a bit more about, well, anything you want to comment on what I've just said, but on what sort of brought you over the line in, into that view and how you would think to approach that given that, I don't, I never feel qualified to come up with like when someone puts a picture up of like, this is what a virus is based on an interpretation of what's down in an electron microscope. So what, what do you think is a good way to go about that in terms of finding some sort of truth in it? Sure. I just want to comment real quick on the spike in deaths, right? I live in New York city. I live in, in um, Queens, but close, close to the city, 20 minutes from Manhattan by train, you know, and um that we that we we would watch the news and see this the, the red, just red numbers of deaths and dying and dying and dying right i would still i would still go out every day and i would hang out in the park i have friends like i would hang out in the park and uh you know go by hospitals i would walk and look walk past hospitals and look at them and there was long lines outside right but there wasn't people dropping, dropping dead on the lines in the street, right? And I, I'm cynically just attribute the, the spike in deaths to the care of the people who were scared shitless going to the hospital, thinking I'm gonna die. There's this deadly, I just caught this deadly disease, I'm gonna die. People who have symptoms, the symptoms were endless. It gave you a list of every single symptom there could be. And people go to the, people are, um, they're scared. They go to the doctor, they go to the hospital and, and the, the nursing homes. I mean, I don't, I can't dwell too much on that because that's, that would make me crazy to really go into the nursing home deaths. Like I always say, if I had a, a relative that was in a nursing home at that time and they wouldn't let me go see them and they wouldn't tell me what was going on, I would break in and, kid, and steal them and kidnap them and just deal with the consequences, you know? Yeah, people in the UK have done that, not, not just during COVID, but with the um, end of life pathways things, the essentially that the UK has always had a covert euthanasia program. People have had to break into nursing homes and, and hospitals and get their relatives out. There's a famous chef in the UK, Rusty Lee, who, who did that to get her relatively aunt out. And then because she's famous, she was talking about doing it on the BBC. Sorry, sorry, it's a bit of a digression there. <laughs> no, no that, that's exactly what I'm talking about is like, what, what do you do with the information they're giving you? They're telling you all these people are dying. And they're also telling you the cause at the same time. The cause is this virus that's flying through the air and people are catching it and everyone's dying from it, right? So if they're telling you all these people are dying and they also tell you the cause, don't mistake disbelieving the, the, the cause for the people that are dying, right? I never doubted that people are dying. I never doubt that people are sick. Like I walk around and look at people. They're sick, a lot of sick people. You can just see by the, the way they walk, you know, the, just people look very unhealthy right now. But I was always amazed at the people wearing the masks, standing outside Popeye's waiting for chicken sandwiches, fried chicken, you know, like I was always amazed that people can't make that connection in their mind that like, you know, the food that you're eating is, is what's making you sick. The, 
the shit that you're drinking and eating and the chemicals, the spray in the air, you know, I don't even get too deep into all that, but to look for the cause of sickness and then start with this idea that there is an invisible terrorist to me is looking past so many other thing causes of sickness. Okay, in general, yes, John, but when there's like the food people are eating is not making them massively more sick in April of 2020. Right. No, so but has the psychological, be... but the psychological trauma of of watching the news and seeing these these nonstop images of death and and hospitals, like that would push people who are already unhealthy. This is just my I'm just this is just my opinion based on you know my lifetime of, of eating like very healthy and taking care of myself and never really getting sick, like never getting a flu or a cold. Like I say never hyperbolically, but you know, so I, I, I might be biased in this thinking like, well, I'm not sick. So why are other people sick? You know? And then I would just say, well, just stop eating fried food, stop eating cake, stop eating, like stop eating all these things and see how you feel, you know, but that's just, you know, my, that might be my personal bias. So I apologize if I'm pushing that in there. No, it's okay. I mean, I do, I think there are plausible mechanisms that other than the virus that could drive up the death rate. So initially, just a few months after that, there were reports in the UK media of how the government had handled the virus in terms of they emptied out the hospitals because they were mm-hmm. expecting an influx. They emptied it out into the old people's home. But that that still confirms the viral hypothesis. So you put all these people who are carrying COVID into the old people's home and then it's just a slaughterhouse in there because you, you've essentially done, the government essentially did exactly the opposite of what it should have done according to its own principles where you're supposed to isolate and protect the elderly and they did exactly the opposite of that they they put all the sick in with the elderly and then locked them in the building together so that that was interesting does it but i'm sorry i don't mean i don't mean to interrupt but does it prove the viral or, or does it support the viral or does it if you're thinking about it another way does it also show you that the psychological trauma that these people were exposed to uh, and being shoved together in a room, telling them that they all possibly have a, a life, life-ending disease, like telling all these already sick, already sick and old people, subjecting them to this psychological trauma. Can you discount that in favor of a particle that they don't get an electron microscope? Like, can you believe an electron microscope without knowing how it works, without knowing the process of what they put the things that they look under the electron microscope, the process that they put that through, and then saying it's the same thing that they think they're going to see you and they see it and they say, oh, that's it, you know? Okay, hang on. I'll come back to that. I want to ask you about that, that process it goes through. So just to sort of wrap up on this, I, I you can't discount anything because when, like my overriding point is when you change a complex system, you can't do it in a predictable way. Like it moves to reset itself. So for example, if you like, well, just like you've just said, when you announce a virus is coming, the death rate might might go up just because of stress, just because you're telling people now they're real with this dangerous virus. Or as I think happened in, in the UK, um, and I've heard this from Canada too, when hospitals think they're going to get full of uh, people coming in with a virus, they put people on end of life care pathways uh, a lot. Yeah, exactly. Right? They put, well, essentially, yeah, exactly. They, they euthanize people. And that, that seems to have happened in various uh, jurisdictions. And the other one is the medical trials, right? Where they, they put people on toxic doses of hydroxychloroquine. Now, when I interviewed Meryl Nass, she said, absolutely that happened, uh, but she doesn't think it's substantial enough to impact the death rate. 
I'm, I'm just, I find the psychological factors very intangible, right? It's hard to kind of nail them down and say, well, how, how much of a, a death rate increase would you expect from psychological factors? I think that's like, and you could also say like stress of like being locked down. and like, Well, that's what I mean. I'm, rest, so. I'm including stress in with psychological. I just mean yeah. the trauma. The yeah, trauma. Sure. Having highlighted that, maybe it, I would like to ask you about this other factor of what I hear from the no virus camp. And this is like quite new information to me. So I'm only attempting to get my head around this now is this idea of meaningful isolation. So I right. heard Tom Cowan give an analogy and I understood the analogy, but I, I don't understand necessarily the details of how it applies to virology. So he talked about how, like if someone drinks a can of or a cup of coffee and they become kind of hyperactive or in their mind, um, does that prove that caffeine causes that? And the obvious answer is no, because you've got boiling water, you've got milk, you've got whatever else is in with the coffee in the bean. So to do, to prove that you would have to isolate specifically caffeine and have a double blind test where you give caffeine to hundred people and something that, uh, like inert to another hundred people and compare the difference. Okay. And without that, you cannot say caffeine is a stimulant. The you know what I'd say is like, so you see where I'm going with this, the virus has not been meaningfully isolated because it's mixed in of all these different things. So can you explain that a bit, please? What, what's meant when people say that? Yeah, I'm going to do it in late as a layman. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I'm going to just, as if I stumble over some words, like just forgive me. But as far as I know, and I'm only going by what anyone else can read, you know, not just internet, but books and, you know, CDC's own website, like whatever. The, what they claim that they're doing when they isolate a virus, first of all, they're assuming its existence first, right? They're not taking a substance, take, take mucus, phlegm. They take, they'll take phlegm. They're not just looking through the phlegm without presupposing that there's a virus in it. So they're looking for a virus in it, right? And then they're, they're using all this complex genetic like vocabulary to discuss how they do that. And they, you know what I mean? Like, there's no like, here's the phlegm, let's filter it, find a particle, take that particle, take just that particle. Now, as far as I know, Dr. Kaufman says that they're able to isolate other particles of the supposed size of a virus, right? There's, I, I can't verify that. I'm not like a, a lab person, I don't know. But if that's, the, if that's the case, if they're able to isolate other particles of that size, and isolate means take it by itself, but they don't, they don't do that. They won't, they haven't done that, right? As far as I know, they haven't done that. What they do instead is they make, make a cell culture and they claim to be culturing. They take, they take the whole substance, the phlegm, or, you know, maybe not fully the phlegm, but they'll, they say they'll isolate part of it i don't really i don't know how you can isolate part of something and not just the thing that you say is there and then they'll create they'll make in a test tube or in a petri dish or however they do it they make a culture and they claim that the culture has virus in it and they can they can witness the virus killing the cells right so they're not the isolation needs to be, there's a particle. They say there's a particle. They, they can isolate things at that size. 
Why don't they isolate that particle, take just that particle, put it into put it in into the mix and see what happens, and then say what it is. They're defining that it exists first, not not isolating it, and then claiming that the experiment that they're doing is proving that it exists because the cells die. And again, supposedly, I I only say this because I read it and I, you know, I read about it. Stefan Lanka did a control experiment that shows that the same experiment could be done without taking a supposedly uh, viral like load of phlegm or whatever and putting it into the dish, the cells still die because of the way they're treated, because of all the other stuff, that, all the other stuff that goes into this process is insane when you read it, when you go, go and like read one of these papers that says, how they isolated a virus. It makes like it's it's nomenclature, like it's it's sophistry, like it's just a bunch of crazy shit. And then when you read it, you say, well, how does that prove that there's a little particle that you could take from one person, put it in another person, and then it hijacks their cells and starts doing all this wild shit? Like they're not showing that. Sorry. No, no, that's great. That's really good. I mean, that's the point I zoomed in. Now I listened to a load of Tom Cowan's podcasts where either he himself was talking about this or he was interviewing to interviewing people on the subject. And um, that's what I zoomed in on that point about isolation, because it, it moves from the complexity of what's going on under an electron microscope to a point of pure logic. Cause with, with the coffee example, you could put caffeine under an electron microscope at as much magnification as you like. If you've not isolated it, it's irrelevant, right? So I, I'm not, certainly not able to come down on one side or the other of that argument. But to me, that seemed, this question of isolation seemed to be the place to go if you wanted to make headway with it. Yeah, headway with, with which side? You mean head, headway well, and like if they, just showed, if they just showed how they isolated? And I think a lot of the, the people who came out during COVID now that are like kind of in the camp of like vi- what they call like virus deniers, whatever, a lot of them would actually shut up and take it if they because a lot of them are very like just scientifically minded you know and you could tell like they're they're looking for something and they're not finding it and i think if they found what they were looking for they would admit okay that makes sense now but the the official story of virology does there's so many holes in it logically that if you have a logical mind even like a semi-logical mind like mine like there's just so many holes in it. I would be just constantly asking a virologist, what about that? What about that? But that doesn't make any sense. You know, and like, why would you, like they, they want you to doubt that about yourself in a way so that you just don't take it that far and, and wonder like, so the word virus originally means poison, right? They, they presupposed its existence a long time ago. You know, I, there's, there's whole books you can read on the history of how virology came to be and how, they, they first they couldn't discover the protein they were looking for, so they kind of scrapped the whole thing. And then genetics, quote unquote, genetics, whatever eugenics, you know. I guess I have to I have to say that I I don't resist the idea too much that there are eugenicists that are just experimenting on people and doing like crazy vile shit. So that's why like. It, it might, it, it, you know, it might affect my ability to look at things completely down the middle and say, well, 
you know, I might be wrong. Because I might be wrong, but you you can stop me, stop me anytime. No, that's fine. That, I mean, that's what I think. Like, I don't know if this is right or wrong, but I think they're raising, like, very interesting questions, and I'm learning a lot from looking at it. So that's my, like, interest in it. One more question yeah, on just, this point. Go on, sorry. Okay. No, I was just, I mean, just look at the mechanism that they say they, they just code the COVID, the TV, the TV drama of COVID. When you watch the news, I used to watch the mainstream news just to see what they were saying. And, you know, how does it fly through the air? It attaches to little aerosol droplets. And then is it alive or is it dead? Like no one, science, even virologists say, is the virus alive or is it, or is it not alive? And it's, it's dead until it goes into your body, but it could fly through the air and come in and then it comes back to life. And then they replicate by the billions. There's billions of them in your body, but scientists, the scientists still can't isolate them. They can't like, you know, there's not enough. There's not enough of them to like isolate. But sorry, go ahead. Go. Well, my, my final question on this topic, then we've got a couple to round up. Is is there anything that makes you think, ah, no, wait a minute about this? Like, and I just think, you know, like I had measles as a kid, right? And I don't know how else I would explain I had chicken that. Pot. I yeah, had, yeah, okay, I had well, that too. I, yeah, it could be a specul a speculative explanation. But yeah, that's be fine. Yeah, because we understand we're doing that. Yeah. So okay, we're an organism, right? We're like whatever you believe of, of like what our purpose is here as living beings, we're born and we have this, this potential of, of our whole life is in like, kind of like, I don't know if you know, James Hillman, uh, he, he compares it to like, it's like an acorn, you know, like James Hillman, this, a Jungian psychologist. Yeah. He's, yeah. he went a little bit further than Jung on some things, but he, the, this acorn metaphor, and it's not just the physical, it's our spiritual too. It's like our soul is like an acorn, right? And we have this whole potential life ahead of us. So we're going to grow into this being, right? Like we're, we're, we're a baby. Before we're a baby, we're an embryo. We have all this potential to grow into something. And there's this like growth process that's already kind of, it's not predestined, but there's the, the potential of this growth process. So even while we're an embryo, like we have like this type of information in us that when we're seven years old, it's going to know what to do to kick off the next kick off the next growth spurt, right? Like we keep growing for like 20 years. You know what I mean? That's crazy. And there's things in our body that, that do that. We don't, we don't do it, right? So maybe just in from the terrain, my bastardized version of what terrain is, uh, our body is doing these things for us, right? And there's like a detox mechanism. And, and maybe at six years old, seven, five, maybe at that age, we're about to go into another growth spurt and our, our skin, something, something to do with our skin is about to kick in, right? To, to like give us a new layer of skin. And maybe at that point, we grow up in this Western diet of, of eating Captain Crunch for breakfast and like, you know, bagels and donuts and pizza and all this shit. At that age, maybe we're already toxified. And so when that detox system kicks in, we develop these symptoms, right? And if there are other kids around us at the time, they're the same age as us. They're in the same school. They drink the same pasteurized, disgusting milk that they gave us in school. They drink the same chocolate milk. They, eat the, they drink the same high C and, and eat the same uh, Lunchables or whatever kids eat. Like we're all in the same mess. Like we're all in the same like sewage system, right? So people exhibiting symptoms at the same time to me is not that difficult to fathom. Even chicken pox, even measles, like even those things. 
Sure. Well, I mean, it is what happened with scurvy, essentially, people exhibiting symptoms at the same time in a confined environment. So yeah, I I, I take you, I mean, it's an interesting, um, I don't know if I should say conjecture uh, or explanation. It's, it's, it, it is yeah, a it's conjecture. fascinating. It, yeah. It is a conjecture because I don't know what I, I sure. Sure. Okay. Penultimate question, John. How do you see the dialogue around this subject emerging? And I'll just like put some meat on the bone there. For me, I've been interested in involved in 9-11 truth for I've had a well, I've had an interest in it since 9-11. And a few years ago I became more interested in it when I um interviewed a, a fellow New Yorker of yours, Adam Fitzgerald, for for a series. And what I saw on that is, is amongst people who are um opposed to the state narrative, there becomes division and breakdown along ideological lines and an absence of flowing information over those lines. So in, in some ways, in ways that like weirdly directly parallel what we're seeing now. So the, there's the Al-Qaeda doesn't exist camp and there were no hijackers on the planes. It was all remote controlled. And then there's the, um, who said, no, 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 Al-Qaeda does kind of exist, but they're soft puppets of the CIA. And the, the guys who are on the planes as kind of patsies. Then no, no, Al-Qaeda really exists as an independent organization and the CIA funds them, but they got out of hand. And that's where 9-11 came from. And you have this like, in some ways, healthy breakdown or healthy division of people taking different perspectives, but it becomes very toxic in that there's no communication. Everyone gets very attached to their ideologies. And I see that now emerging. And this is what I, I tried to bring up in my interview with Dr. Meryl Nass about the, particularly along the, the opposition to COVID breaks down along, there's a dangerous virus out there, which has clearly caused a spike in the death rate, or there is no virus. And it's, it's our own interventions that are causing the spike. And, and people get very like attached to either position, I suppose, and quite defensive for positions, uh, maybe, maybe for good reason, like maybe half of them have good reason. But how do you see that kind of, that division in the narrative? Yeah, so uh, specifically, uh, like specifically about COVID, because 9-11, I can't speak on too much because I just know, I don't, I just know that whatever the, whatever the- Yeah, yeah, I mean, George specifically Bush, on COVID and this well, virus question. Yeah, whatever George Bush said wasn't true, that's all I know. <laughs> but- but uh, with COVID specifically, I just, it boils down to personality types for me, right? Like, I feel like the, there's a, there's a certain personality type that likes James Bond movies and that they want, uh, they want the bioweapon thing to be true, right? They, they want this, it's like, I call it like sci, uh, poli sci, poli sci fiction. It's like a political science fiction that people live in, like, there's, you know, an evil group of scientists that developed this super weapon that, and I'm not saying that that's not true, that there are evil scientists who invent bioweapons. I totally agree with that, right? But that's taking precedence over the, uh, like another personality type, which I would consider myself is where like, I'm a little bit obsessed with my, with feeling healthy and physically fit in a sense, right? Like, so to me, I'm taking it as, well, what, what does this all mean from a total natural health standpoint? What does it mean to be healthy? What do I eat? How do I feel when I eat, you know? And what, what symptoms do I exhibit if I'm ever sick? And how does that compare with other people I see who just eat regular food and just do whatever, right? So I think the people who focus on the things that I'm talking about or, or like purely logic, like trying to find like... Um, like just taking apart the sentences that they're being told that's that's another personality type that I'm a little bit of like I'm a little bit of like a logical like detective type like someone tells me a story I start like taking apart their sentences and seeing looking for clues as maybe they're not telling me the whole story like that kind of thing 
So I feel like the division is more of a personality type. Like, um, you know, you don't want to look that deep into what a virus as is defined as. You just, not you, I'm just saying in general, yeah. the, the, the word virus tends to substitute for bioweapon. So then when you hear people saying there's no virus, you think they're saying there's no bioweapon. And you, and, okay, I shouldn't say you, sorry. So no, when okay. someone- the, people, the audience someone, understand. Yeah. Okay, so that you hear there's no virus, you think there's no bioweapon, and you think these people are crazy because what's killing these people? Which, what are people dying from? Then, then with AIDS, you say there's no, people say there's no virus, you think that means there's no disease, there's no illness, and that people think you're crazy. They say, how can you say there's no virus? But I think it just has to do with- um, personality type like if you want there to be fauci fauci in the bio lab taking hiv virus and genetically like doing all that stuff which may be happening but that still doesn't mean that there is a pathogen in nature that passes between people that does what they say their bioweapon does you know does that make sense mm -hmm. so the, as far as the, the division between people i think like People who don't trust the corporate government, people who don't trust the official narrative of corporations and the government and the new, the World Economic Forum and all that shit, people who don't trust that should all just agree they don't trust that. But like all the other personality types have to coexist. So there's germaphobic people. If people are germaphobic, they could still distrust fascism. What I call fascism is like the, you know, the corporate government. Like you could still distrust that and be germaphobic. I don't have a problem with that. But if you want to have the conversation of do viruses exist, I'm going to have the conversation and we could talk about it for a long time. I might never convince you if you're germaphobic, you know? Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. So my final question, I wanted to ask, going back to the question of HIV and AZT, have you experienced any pushback? Because one of my reticences or something that makes me a bit reluctant to get, get involved in this whole debate is dealing with kind of complex medical issues. And there's quite a strong pushback about claiming HIV doesn't cause AIDS or calling AZT toxic is a dangerous thing to do. Because you could land and, and claims that people who have made that, like P Peter Duesberg, let's actually, yeah, P Peter Duesberg, right? People call him a murderer. Yeah. Right? because he said that HIV doesn't cause AIDS and he's, well, you follow that logic, whether he's directly saying it or not, and he is directly saying it. The logic is you don't take AZT because AZT is a, a toxic drug. Do you have right. any, any comments on the, um, the nature of that discussion and those kind of, when, when, well, what's clear is that somebody's a murderer. Okay. There's definitely a murderer in the room and we're trying to establish who it is. Is it Peter Duesberg or is it Anthony Fauci and Robert Gallo and the people pushing AZT? for HIV, for AIDS. What, what do you think about that? Well, presented to it that way, I would say that um, Fauci is more of a murderer. I don't think that either of them are like really liable for people's individual lives and deaths. I think they should be, maybe Fauci should be held responsible, but I mean, the people, People make their own choices in life, right? And that's that's a hard thing to just obviously start a conversation off with is that people make their own choices. But in terms of if someone wants to take AZT because they believe 
And it's like a, it's a cosmology. It's a worldview. You believe that you ignore what you eat and drink. You ignore how you live your life. You you go to an office or you work, you know, you work at like uh, some kind of insurance company or whatever people do. And you work there and you you sit there and you, you hate your life. And then you, you go out to eat and you eat all this food that's like not nutritious at all. And you, you stress and your, your life is just one big stress thing. And then the doc, you go to the doctor and they tell you you have a disease and take this medicine and this medicine will help you, right? There's those people that that is a majority of people. And it, to, to shock them out of that cosmology is, it's not for everyone. So if there's like, even my mother, like I wasn't able to convince my mother to stop a- taking AZT. I might not have had the arsenal that I have now, if I could go back and be like, mom, listen, just truck this, you trust these, you trust these drug companies. I would just start with that. You trust these companies, you see how much they're sued. You know what I mean? Like I would start with that and then work in work in the nutrition aspect. Like I'm a little bit extreme. Like I went raw vegan for like five years once, and I know how it feels to feel like like a chimpanzee. Like I could climb trees in a, in five seconds. You know what I mean? I I understand <laughs> that's ridiculous, but at the same time, like you understand how your body actually works. And there's not people, some people don't want to jump into that. They want to stay in that other paradigm of like, no, uh, Chips Ahoy is food. You just eat Chips Ahoy. It might make you fat, but it's not going to make you sick. You can go to Dunkin' Donuts. It might make you fat, but it's not going to make you sick. So, you know, you could drink what, uh, Mike's Hard Lemonade. It might make you drunk. It might make you fat, but it's not going to make you sick, right? And then the sickness is always attributed to a, a thing. It's genetic. It's viral. It's this. And they make up this whole vocabulary and this whole industry is built around making products that they can sell you to, to make sure you're not sick while living the lifestyle that you want to live. So I would always boil it down to like a lifestyle. Like if you really, I'm not going to tell someone not to take AZT if they also don't want to like know about nutrition and health and things like that. Like that's not fair to them. Does okay. that make sense? And I'll definitely want to have you back on to explain the running up trees like a monkey thing. That sounds fascinating. <laughs> yeah, sure. Anything no else you want to mention now, please do. Otherwise, I'm, I think this has been great. And thank you very much. Oh, it's my, it's my pleasure. I, like I, after I heard you on Alex's show, I went back and listened to your show because I had never heard of, heard of it. And I listened to every, I listened to almost every episode probably because it's really good. Well, well that must make you a, a rare group of people. Well, thank you for that. And uh, great. We'll speak <laughs> again. All right. Thank take you. care. Take care, man. Bye.